Grey like memory, white like history books. Gift from the new world that is old world to me. Large unlike most quite large things, this is big. Crude like water spurting out of breasts. Crude like water flowing from a hole in a topless woman's neck. Crude like grooves in stricken, drowning faces. Crude like oil. Crude like something black that sits on water. Crude like a hangman's noose on the right-hand side of a tree. Shark snapping under feet. Crude like me in a gallery. Daughter of water. These are the lines that came to me, stood underneath the Fons Americanus, Cara Walker's new installation in the Turbine Hall of Tate Modern. It's an epic 40-feet-high fountain dedicated to the forgotten figures of transatlantic slavery and colonialism. We are all aware of the, the pain and the, the trauma of our past and um, what happened to our ancestors. And to wear that in such a, an immediate way, everywhere you go, everywhere you walk, is to, to, to not function, right? So if I'm honest, there is a part of me that has to switch that off and shut that down most of the time. I think Britain is beginning, maybe, to address these legacies of slavery and colonialism. It's tip of the iceberg stuff, though. It makes me think of this meme where British history, according to Britons, is represented by this fluffy little puppy. And then the other side of the meme is like, Britain in every other country's history books, and it's this rabid, terrifying wolf. I love Cara's work. She's a black artist making work about black lives, and she makes our stories so huge that they are impossible to ignore. Most of my work over the last 25 years, I guess it has been now, has uh, been wrestling with how the past is remembered and forgotten simultaneously. And uh, I, I became interested in that as a teenager moving to the American South because it's a place that's quite steeped in its own mythology um, around race and segregation and slavery and how we memorialize people. Yeah, I guess, I, you know, I don't know what it's like to grow up here. I think that the UK maybe gets, a, gets an easy pass sometimes from thinking about slavery or it gets the, uh, you know, abolition card. It seems it could be very liberating to, you know, grow up here and not be sort of like, like asked to think about it. <laughs> and then here I come with this work and I'm like, well, just think about it. In each of our lives, our histories, we have things you want to celebrate and remember and things we'd rather forget. But what happens when important histories are erased? And why are some stories easier to forget than others? This is The Art of Remembering, a Tate podcast. I'm Bridget Minimore, and I'm a poet from London. Growing up here, you're surrounded by statues, fountains and monuments. 
It's only as I've gotten older that I've started to pay attention to who we put on plinths and who we don't. The Fons Americanus is based on the Victoria Memorial outside Buckingham Palace in London. It commemorates Queen Victoria and the British Empire she upheld. But it doesn't quite tell the full story. To check it out, we sent a few members of Tate Collective down there. Young 15 to 25-year-olds who collaborate with Tate on creative projects. I've never been here, so to be honest, you would think it would look like any other uh, monument, but it's quite vast in comparison to other ones, and I'm quite short, so it's very, very tall in comparison to me, and I think that kind of represents her reign, because obviously she was a big, big figure, and she was very powerful, and you really get the sense of that from this, because you feel that you're the lower figure. I'm someone who's from the Caribbean, so when it comes to like monuments that represent colonial um, histories, it's quite a conflicting feelings, um, I guess, because a lot of people were abused and were killed and suffered for us to be like Great Britain. So I think there's a lot to dissect there. Stature and power and empire and blood too and slavery—they're all woven and threaded into the fabric of British history. Narratives are sort of heading towards a more modern attitude in the sense that people are understanding and engaging more with the darker sides of history that have either been covered up or swept under the rug or overlooked. I feel quite detached from it. It's kind of a capsule of a certain period of time in history and I think that, in that sense, needs to be left alone and sort of understood and accepted so we can move on. My parents are from Ghana, and from a young age, I got used to feeling disconnected from the figures I saw in statues. But when it comes to the legacies of slavery and colonialism, it's pretty hard to just move on. A letter to you. Here's to the people who have at least 16... Vanessa Kasule is a good friend of mine, as well as an amazing poet. She is of Ugandan heritage, and we've had a lot of chats over the years about the way our backgrounds sit alongside the art we make. Vanessa lives in Bristol, in the southwest of England, and is the official city poet. Even the tallest and most formidable of towers was once... Just a pile of bricks. She told me all about Countering Colston, a movement to remove the icons and name of a 17th century slave trader called Edward Colston from the city. I'm visiting her for a personal tour. Hi, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. So we're on Colston Street, which is in a very central part of Bristol. We're about five minutes away from the main Broadmead area, which is essentially the high street of Bristol. Um, and this street's quite interesting because it is pretty much end-to-end independent businesses and shops. So I have a lot of fondness for this street in terms of what it represents <laughs> in that sense. But its name is a very difficult and fraught thing. Edward Colston made his fortune transporting enslaved Africans to the Americas. He also poured huge amounts of his money into Bristol, so his name is plastered everywhere. A recent campaign to rename the city's main arts venue, 
Colston Hall, has created a knock-on effect. The big debate with Colston Hall was happening and then not long after that, Bristol Yard had a complete refurbishment and then renamed itself, so it was called the Colston Yard until very recently. And uh, I just find that really interesting that it clearly created a domino effect of sorts in terms of the general consciousness of businesses in the area. And this is what I mean about where does that where does that end? I've not heard anything about the girls' school changing its name. I've not heard anything about the statue being taken down or having something put on it in terms of a plaque um, that might acknowledge the history of uh, Colston's involvement in imperialism. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how far these changes go and what they ultimately mean in terms of how people are reflecting on the history. I might feel a bit more sort of grey area around the practicalities of changing names, but I am really in favour of the campaigns mm. because I think at the very least they inspire a conversation yes. that it's hard to inspire in any other way. People have actually started to engage with this idea of what it means to walk around in the cities, in countries that are just built on, I don't know, colonialism and yes. slavery. Yes. And it is, and we don't really accept it. In in the States, you know, they, they definitely have... A, I'm not saying it's necessarily better, mm. but they definitely are aware mm. of their history, of American history involving slavery. And I, I think, think it's because of the fact that the the slavery itself was not occurring on this land. Yeah, So there's, a, there's, a, there's an ability to dissociate um, from the reality of it because... In America, you can go and you can visit those former plantations. You can't mm. escape it in the way that we can because obviously it was happening in these faraway islands um, and then we reaped the sugar and the rum and the tobacco, etc. Mm. But a lot of people that owned slaves in Britain didn't see these places, these faraway islands where people were suffering once, you know? So they just saw these people as these vague pieces of property um, on an island somewhere that they would probably never visit. So I think that's why we have such a sense of uh, convenient amnesia about it because in terms of the very grounded uh, geographical sense of place, mm. we're not able to go right there is where this happened. I never learned about slavery or colonialism in school. In Britain, those histories feel very much out of sight, out of mind, which is why I love the written declaration that goes along with Cara's work. She asks us to witness the Fons Americanus, the daughter of waters, to behold the swirling drama of the merciless seas, and to marvel and contemplate the monumental misrememberings of colonial exploits yon. It's an invitation for us to begin to see the figures, stories and histories that have been obscured or hidden from view. And it's really powerful when we do. I was 10 years old. I went to Barbados with my dad. It was my dad's first time returning since he'd left to move to England. And we were driving around and I, we, there was this roundabout and then there was this, this figure with arms upheld, chains broken in this, like, heroic stance. I guess I'd never really looked up that far uh, a black person in a sculpture, ever. And that had a very big effect on me. Hannah Catherine Jones is an artist, scholar and composer. One of her recent video art performances was inspired by a monument to a rebel slave in the Caribbean, the Bussa Emancipation Statue. It was made by an artist called Carl Brudhagen and it's to honour 
Busser, the Bayesian slave of Igbo descent who led the 1816 rebellion in Barbados. And then I've been able to come back and really research that in recent years. And I do a work called Ode to Busser where it's kind of like a screen recording video of me researching, just Googling Busser, finding Wikipedia, highlighting the information, looking at Google images, and then relating it to things that are or were going on at the time contemporaneously, like Kendrick Lamar's Grammy performance where he and his band entered the stage as, like, prisoners. Or, like, the British Black Panthers, like, who are these freedom fighters? How are they connected across time? Every time I perform that work, it's about ten minutes. It's kind of a lament where I just sing the name Busser over and over. Because I want that name to have life breathed into it regularly... It's a meditation and it's my kind of offering. And it's ongoing. The more I learn about different struggles, the more important it is to remind yourself of that. And, you know, maybe one day in not too distant future, everyone will be learning about Buster on the curriculum. So these things really do matter. They really do matter. They can change the course of your life. These monuments and sculptures aren't just dead objects. They do have the power to move and inspire us. And they're especially powerful when they represent the people on the margins. Do you remember Olive Morris? All her strength, all her pride. Do you remember Olive Morris? All the fire she had inside. Do you remember Olive Morris, all she did for me and for you? Do you remember Olive Morris, could we be like her too? My name's Rini Matic, I'm 22 and I'm an artist currently studying in London. Rini designed a series of sculptures that commemorate the life of Olive Morris, a black activist whose legacy is often overlooked. Olive Morris was a British community leader and activist in the feminist, black nationalist and squatters' rights campaign of the 1970s. And she was really integral to um, British Black Panther movement and helped a lot, a lot, a lot of people out. So it's kind of um, wild that a lot of people don't know who she is. So I created four black perspex fists that stood outside the black cultural archives and... The image of the fist has lots of connotations of power, connotations of blackness and strength. So I took that as my symbol, I suppose, of Olive. But to connect it to her, I made it five foot two, which is her height and also my height, which felt really important to imagine her as a, as a, a body in a space and a, a human being. I think that sculpture can be incredibly helpful and important because it's a physical object that's in a space it takes up space that was probably the most important thing about the piece honestly because it stood in people's way and I wanted it to be like this kind of forest of fists that you had to weave through to get to the entrance of the black cultural archives and they're quite hard to ignore and I think that that's what the main thing my main concern is about these stories is that we make them hard to ignore and we make them impossible to forget. 
I'm totally with Rini when it comes to celebrating forgotten heroes. But what do we do with the stories that hurt us? The monuments and statues that remind us of our collective wounds? Personally, I'm a bit on the fence about putting them down. But I didn't think I'd feel so strongly about seeing the statue of Colston in Bristol. When I ended up standing underneath him, I actually felt a bit ill. He is looking down at us in a sort of pensive way. He's got a cane, his arm is folded across his other arm. He's dressed up, I think. I don't really know what um, 17th century fashion was like, but he seems like he's quite well-dressed. And he's on this plinth that's sort of surrounded by these carp, I think. Large fishes with their mouths open that look kind of grotesque, actually. Oh my God, I love it. Erected by citizens of Bristol as a memorial of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city. Oh my God. See, that is just like... That's actually mad, isn't it? I really it? dislike it. I really dislike... I love I didn't... Sculpture. I will admit, and I feel very ignorant of this, that I've not actually read that until now. Really? I've not read that, and that, that makes me want to vomit. It makes me really uncomfortable that you could be, like, a kid or someone who... Or a tourist, and you're not going to sit and read a plaque or multiple plaques about his, like, crimes or whatever, but you just see this man and he's important. And I think that, you know, I come from a culture where, like, names are so important and faces are so important and, and, and the way we speak things into existence is so important. And speaking this name all the time adds to a collective consciousness, even if people aren't necessarily conscious of the specifics of this man and seeing his face the number of people who see his face on a daily basis mm. right adds to him sort of staying alive in a small way and I don't like that and <laughs> I don't know whether mm, this might be a bit naughty but um, I am a sneaky advocate of mindful vandalism if such a thing exists <laughs> i.e. cutting through the grandeur of a statue by putting a traffic cone on its head which sounds silly and juvenile, but I feel like there's there's something no. about that that's really powerful. That's um, totally it valid. Essentially, to me. means that like the public are able to engage with these statues. There's not this reverence around them, of, like we don't touch them, we don't mark them, we don't essentially exist to be in dialogue with them. You know, and I think it's our general attitude around art and history. It's this thing on a plinth over here that us lowly people aren't supposed to engage with. So I really like it when we can intervene with these things. So again, this is why I'm not necessarily for getting rid of statues or commemorative things. I I want people to scribble on them, to make um, counteractive art about them, to really engage with it. Those monuments, what they wind up doing is they they speak to no one, they speak to themselves, and they actually need to be in conversation or in dialogue. They create tension because they don't respond when we get angry with them. And then the only way we can get angry with them is to make them go away. If we remove it, what justice do we replace it with? What is the commitment that we replace it with? No, I guess there's, it's almost like I have this kind of pathos for the for the fragility of that that wish for the thing to be what it really is, for the queen to really be what she is meant to be. Isn't that sad that they have to hurt me in order to rise above? Isn't that too bad that we can't actually all be equal here? The act of remembering can be painful, especially when we have personal connections to these histories. 
I wonder if Cara felt that when producing her work. I definitely feel like I'm churning up a lot of difficult emotions when I write about these subjects myself. With Ode to Busser, I was finding out things for the first time about enslavement, you know, when you're doing your research. That's heavy, especially when the reason you're kind of drawn to it is because you can recognise the echoes of that quite profoundly in your day-to-day life. That might sound overdramatic, but it's it's true, you know? So, like, you have to kind of take breaks. I think sometimes it can be... It can feel like a really dangerous game, like your personal life and your academic work are intrinsically linked in a way that, yeah, can be unhealthy, um, especially if you don't take breaks or if you do something in too, too extreme. For example staying on a former plantation in Barbados for five weeks. That needs so much preparation, breathing time around it. Don't expect that to be an easy thing to do. As a diasporic person or black British or mixed black Caribbean and white or whatever, it almost feels as though it's not a choice. It's a necessity. Um, It's almost a responsibility. So for me, it's the only way the only way to go at the moment, which is kind of a shame because sometimes, you know, you're kind of like, why can't I just make work and it not be about blackness? But the truth of the matter is we're just not there yet. That whole conversation that we get forced upon us, that dreaded question about slavery and um, pain... That's actually not my story. It's my ancestor's story and it's a huge part of my strength and my spirituality and my energy. Um, But I'd really love to talk about blackness in a way that is shocking and not, not shocking in a way that is about bad things, shocking in a way that it's about really beautiful things that no one's ever thought about before. Blackness is my flat, my dog, my, uh, I don't know, these really nice jeans that I'm wearing. (laughs) Those are all very material things, but no, blackness is, 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 it just is. We're never going to be healed if we keep recycling, reusing language and images that are painful for us and that are actually easier for the white gaze to look at rather than for us to look at. I guess it's about finding the balance. When it comes to racism and oppression, unfortunately, the past isn't really over. So I suppose I feel a sense of responsibility to speak out in my work. And sometimes that means going over difficult subject matter. But art and creativity can also be a refuge and a safe space. And we need those too. It certainly is for me and Vanessa. What I like about poetry is that it's it's a place where language can do more unusual and unexpected things mm. than um, we would expect in uh, um, an article in a newspaper. Whereas poetry, I believe, is the, is the language of, of feeling, of thought, which is weird and tangled messy up and, and messy, exactly. Mm. <laughs> I think we have to be armed with many things. I think the mm. facts are important. I think historical specificity is important. Uh, But poetry and art is so integral to us 
making our peace with the complexity of this stuff because I think people are obsessed with wanting to know what what it is is it bad is it good did it did it happen did it not happen um am I the villain in this story or the victim like people really want to place things in specific boxes and what art does is it just goes here's one way of looking at it here's another way of looking at it here's six different things all happening at once and you as the viewer or you as the reader you are going to pick out what you're going to pick out because of who you are and that is okay so yeah I think art has an interesting role to play in how we look at history and it's it's nice to be an artist in that sense I feel like we have a freedom to look at these narratives in a way that other people Mm. perhaps don't do you think art then has the power to help us heal from uh, a kind of collective trauma that can be churned up every time we're asked as maybe black artists specifically to look at slavery and colonialism. Can I ping that question back at you because I'm interested to know ah. what you think and then I and then I might be able to offer my own thoughts because it's a big one and I'm not sure. What do you think? Oh. I think art has the power to help us heal, but I don't think it should be burdened with yes, being a yes. healing thing. That makes sense. And I don't think anywhere near all art has the power to help us heal. I think it's actually a very small minority of it. I think inherently art is not um, a mode for change. I don't think art is inherently powerful or healing, but it can be, and Mm. that's exciting. As an artist uh, or storyteller, I'm an unreliable narrator, and I think that that's one one of the problems that I've been kind of thinking about, or the, the problem that I've been thinking about when it comes to talking about the past, um, is it's, well, it's never really past in the first place, but it's very hard to, to grasp all of its particularities. It's so much easier to kind of have a blanket overview. This happened, and here we are, because we need to know a little bit of something in order to sort of justify, you know, the things that we do today. That's a good one to end on, because I, I, I have nothing more to say. <laughs> Visit the free Hyundai Commission, Kara Walker, at Tate Modern from 2nd October 2019 to 5th of April 2020, in partnership with Hyundai Motor, supported by Sikema Jenkins & Co., with additional support from Tate America's Foundation. The exhibition is curated by Clara Kim and Priyesh Mystery. You've been listening to The Art of Remembering, a Falling Tree production for Tate. Produced by Zakia Sewell, executive produced by Hannah Geddes, with music by Vula Viel and Uffa.